I want you to open your Bibles with me, if you will, to uh, the book of Revelation. We're going to start a new sermon series that's going to take us through this entire book. Um, But before we we take a deep dive together in this book, I think it's going to be helpful for us to sort of dip our toe in the water, if you will, uh, a little bit today, okay? Uh, And and I think that... um, that, that what we need is, is, a, is a perspective, an overview perspective of this book as a whole. And, and um, I don't think it's by coincidence that John actually does that for us in the first eight verses of chapter one. So I'd like you to turn to chapter one of the book of Revelation. It's the last book in your Bible if you're using one of our uh, black handout Bibles. It's, you can find chapter one on page 1089. Okay, if, and if you don't have a Bible of your own, we'd love to encourage you to just keep that and uh, take that home with you. Read uh, through it, mark it up, take some notes, do whatever will help you dig into the Word of God. Don't do it alone either, do it with someone else. There's a little handy uh, half sheet of paper in there that helps you think through how you can do that together. There is um, no other book in the Bible quite like the book of Revelation, Right? But that does not mean that the book of Revelation is not like any other book of the Bible. Maybe, you're avoiding, uh, maybe you've avoided re- reading Revelation because you're in, intimidated by it, some weird stuff in there, right? Maybe you've tried to read it, but you gave up after like the letters to the churches in chapters 2 and 3, because those were you know, fairly easy to understand, and then it just got super weird, and you're like, I'm out, okay? I'll take my chances with Leviticus instead, Right? Um, or maybe, listen, maybe, maybe Revelation just like really spins your wheels and, and you're so uh, excited about this uh, because you've read it more times than anybody else in this room and you've got it all figured out. But whether you're intimidated or you're confused or you're excited or anything in between, my prayer for us as a church family this morning and throughout this entire series is that we will approach this book the way that we approach every other book in the Bible together, with humility and openness to let this book speak for itself, to let the word of God speak as the word of God to the people of God. I think that's the only approach that will allow us to truly benefit from anything that we read in Revelation, and Lord willing, this morning that we, we will see together that this book offers us a tremendous amount of benefit right now for our daily lives, that, we, that we're missing something if we, if we put this book aside and avoid it. So I want to read these first eight verses and then pray like crazy for the Lord's help. I want you to know I don't have Revelation figured out either, okay? We're going through this together. We're learning together. I want to read this and then pray and then we'll dig in. The revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ whatever he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep, obey what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in Asia, grace and peace to you from the one who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before the throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to God and to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, and even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, the one who is, the one who was, and the one who is to come, 
the Almighty. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have given us as your people. You've, you've poured out your spirit of grace, not just on us, but in us, to dwell in us, to seal us for the day of redemption as we look to the return of Christ. I pray this morning and as we go through this series, the same thing that we have prayed every Sunday, that we come together and we open your word, that we would hear what you have to say, that we've come to hear the word and not the preacher, that you would empower me as the preacher to preach your word, that your spirit would convict and comfort and correct our hearts and lead us in greater dependence upon Jesus, greater confidence in him, that we would behold the realities of the gospel this morning and be able to connect them to the realities of our lives. All for our good and your glory, we ask these things in Jesus' almighty name. Amen. A Jewish lion and a slaughtered lamb, six-winged creatures with, uh, covered with eyes, 24 crowned elders sitting on thrones, a dragon, a beast, a false prophet, two fire-breathing prophets, a prostitute, a bride, four horsemen, a scroll with seven seals, angels with seven trumpets and seven bowls, locusts with human faces and scorpion tails, earthquakes, hail, thunder, lightning, and a final battle to end all battles, a resurrection from the dead, and a city of gold." Let's pray. Now, these things sound like the makings of a good science fiction or fantasy novel, but we're going to see all of these things and more in this book right here, the book of Revelation. And none of these things are fiction or fantasy. They are all descriptions of some vitally important realities for you and for me. These images and their descriptions are what make revolution, uh, revolution, I might say that multiple times. These images and their descriptions are what might make revelation not only, by the way, revelation, not revelations, okay? There's no S. It's like, don't say Kroger's. Say Kroger, right? These images and descriptions are what make revelation not only the, the most fascinating book of the Bible, probably, but also one of the most confusing and one of the most misinterpreted books of the Bible as well. Now, many people assume that Revelation is about the end of the world and the return of Christ, and they try to use the contents of this book as some sort of code to crack in order to nail down a timeline for the end times. But the main focus that we will see in the book of Revelation is not on what is to come, stay with me, even though it certainly speaks of these glorious realities and these future things. The main focus of Revelation is on the reality that is happening in the world right now and how we ought to live in light of what is to come. Here's the main point that we're going to discover from these verses this morning. Revelation is not a puzzle to be solved about the future. It's a message to be obeyed right now. It's not a puzzle to be solved about the future. It's a message to be obeyed right now. And everyone who hears this message and obeys this message will be blessed. That promise is built right in this morning. We're going to see that. So as we work our way through these verses, we're going to look at four things this morning. Okay, We're going to look at who the message is from, who the message is for, what the message is about, and why this message matters. Who the message is from, who the message is for, what the message is about, and why this message matters. Let's start with who it's from. Look at verses one and two again with me. The revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, Whatever he saw, the same John that wrote the fourth gospel, the last book that we went through together, uh, 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 we, we started it around this time last year, he also wrote the book of Revelation, but listen, this is super important, this is not a revelation of John, 
Did you catch that? This is not a revelation of John. He's the one that's receiving, and he's the one that's reporting the revelation that is being given to him by someone else. And who is that someone else? Verse 1 tells us very clearly, it's Jesus Christ. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ, not the revelation of John. When we, when we went through uh, John's gospel together uh, earlier, we learned that everything that Jesus said and did came from God the Father. He spoke this way all the time in John's gospel, right? The same is true here. Look at what he says. God the Father gave the revelation to Jesus who gave it to his angel who, and, and, and then sent his angel to give it to John to deliver to the servants, the saints. John identifies himself here as a servant of Christ who testified to whatever he saw in accordance with the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Have you ever played the, the telephone game where you start with a message and you whisper it into one person's ear and then they whisper it into the next and so on and so forth down the line and then the last person says it out loud and it's like, you, said, you started with a sentence and they have a paragraph and none of the words are the same, Right? This is not a cosmic game of telephone that's being played here. There's, there's, no, there's nothing that changes from hand to hand, from, from mouth to ear here. The message that John is testifying to, he tells us, is the very word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. That message did not change between God the Father and Jesus. It did not change between Jesus and the angel. It did not change between the angel and John. Listen, John's message is God's message. John's message is God's message. We need to understand that if we're gonna get anything out of this book. And it's a faithful message. That's who the message is from. Now let's look at who it's for. Look at verses three through six. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in Asia, grace and peace to you from the one who is, who was, and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. What an opening, right? In, in, in verse one, John says that God the Father gave Jesus this revelation to show his servants what must soon take place. And here we see that those servants include seven churches in Asia Minor, which we know as modern-day Turkey, okay? This is a real place. These were real churches in a real time period, the end of the first century. Note this standard letter greeting in verses four through six. That we see, well, listen, if you go th look at Paul's letters, the other letters of the New Testament, you'll see a similar greeting. This is a letter to these churches from John. And yet each of these seven churches gets a letter within this letter addressed to them. We're gonna see that in chapters two and three. But it's important that we understand that these seven churches were the main recipients of everything that John wrote in Revelation. Two very important points then come from this understanding. First, it means that the contents of Revelation have to be relevant for these churches at the end of the first century. It has to be relevant for these churches in their first century setting. Otherwise, this book is no help to them at all. If it's only pointing to future events that will take place long after their lifetime, what good does it do for these believers as they endure intensified persecution from Rome as they're reading this? How does this letter encourage them to endure if it doesn't actually speak about their current situation? We're going to see that chapters 2 and 3 aren't the only chapters that address them directly that address directly what these churches are facing. That's the first important point. The second one is that it means that John intended for these seven churches to understand what it was that he actually wrote to them. These were ordinary followers of Christ like you and me. These were not seminary professors. These were not Bible scholars. John didn't write this to test their IQ or make things hard for them to figure out. This was not a game. 
He wasn't aiming for confusion. He was aiming for clarity. Look at verse 3. He was calling them to obedience to what is written here. Now, it's hard to obey something if you have no idea what it's telling you, isn't it? One more thing to say about this. Revelation may not be written to us. Hear this. It may not be written to us, but it is certainly written for us. Why? Because it's in our Bible too. It's in our Bible that's true of every book of the Bible. Isn't that what we, what we do when we come and we open Scripture together? We look at it in its original context. We say, what did it mean to them? And then we say, how does that apply to us today? It's not written to us, but it is written for us. God's people are blessed, blessed by the hearing of this word and obeying it no matter what century they live in. And just like we are able to do with every other book of the Bible, we can find application for ourselves here in this book of Revelation. But application for us then must be anchored to this book's meaning for these seven churches at the end of the first century in Asia Minor. Message of Revelation is first for them, but it is not only for them. In order to fully grasp this, then now we need to look at what this message is about. But to understand even what this message is about, first we need to understand how this message is presented, how it is laid out. We just saw from verses 4 and 5 that this is a letter, right, directed to the churches. Do you read letters that come in the mail to you the same way you read a bill that comes in the mail to you? You don't, do you? You read it differently. It's important to understand what it is as you're reading it, right? In verse 3, John says that these are words of prophecy. Now, some would argue that this is evidence that the book primarily is concerned with future events, but that's actually not how biblical prophecy works. If you look at the writings of the Old Testament prophets, you will find that even though, yes, they did look at future events, they, they, they spoke to what was to come at certain times, an overwhelming majority of what they wrote was looking back at what God had already said and applying that to the present with the people that they were called to speak to in their lives. The Old Testament prophets called God's people to choose covenant faithfulness to the Lord instead of compromise with the surrounding nations. Their words of prophecy were meant to encourage the faithful remnant to endure hardship and suffering, and they were meant to warn those who strayed that God's judgment awaited them if they continued in rebellion. The prophets pointed those who wandered back to God's covenant faithfulness, God's grace, God's mercy, God's, God's love and faithfulness. And they called them to repent and to put their faith in him. In a similar manner, John wrote this prophetic letter to the seven churches in Asia Minor in order to warn them about the trials, the tribulation, if you will, that they would face as followers of Christ and to encourage them to endure that suffering and affliction and to call them to choose faithfulness to Jesus over compromise with the world. And here in verse 3, he promised blessing to those who listened to what Jesus had given him to say and take it to heart. There's one more word that helps us understand what kind of prophetic letter this is. And in the original Greek that John wrote this letter in, it's, it's the very first word of the whole thing. The very first word. And in our Bibles, it's the second word in, in the English translation. This is where we get the name of the book. This is a revelation it's a revelation. The Greek word is apocalypsis. This is where we get our English word apocalypse from, right? Now listen, when we hear that word, we immediately think like zombies taking over the world and destroying the human race, or we think nuclear holocaust and the decimation of the entire planet. In other words, like end of the world kind of stuff, right? This is so important that we understand this. That's not what apocalypse is. Not even close. That's not what it means what it means is exactly what our English Bibles translate it as. It's a revelation. It's an unveiling, a revealing of something hidden or unseen. It's a pulling back of the curtain to show things as they really 
are. Let me give you another example from the New Testament. In Matthew 16, I talked about this last week, when Jesus they were, they were, uh, was, was with the, his, uh, his Bibles. I gotta slow down, okay? When he was with his disciples at Caesarea uh, and, and, and said, gave them that, that uh, famous question, who do you say I am? And what did Peter say? You are the, the Messiah, the son of the living God. And what did Jesus say? Blessed. Are you, Peter, for this was not revealed, guess what the word is there? Apocalypsis. This was not apocalypsed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. By my Father in heaven. This, God pulled back the curtain for Peter to show him who Jesus really is in that moment. This is how we need to think about this word, Revelation, this word apocalypse. In light of our mission statement here at Redeemer, we might say it this way. The book of Revelation helps us connect the unseen heavenly realities of the gospel to the uh, all-the-time-seen all the earthly realities of our life. The, 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 the book of Revelation, the words of Revelation help us connect the unseen heavenly realities of the gospel with the currently seen earthly realities of our lives. Remember, John is writing here, but God is revealing here. John's giving these seven churches God's heavenly perspective on what's going on in their earthly lives so that they can know how to live in the present, listen, with endurance, faithfulness, and hope, and not check out. That's what the message of this book is about. Suddenly that becomes a lot more applicable to our own lives, doesn't it? But Apocalypsis doesn't just describe what God is doing. It also describes how John is writing. If we're going to understand what's going on in this book, we need to understand how apocalyptic writing works. I found one pastor's description to be really helpful, so I don't need to come up with something new for you, okay? He said that apocalyptic writing is two things, non-linear and non-literal. Non-linear and non-literal. When we think of something as linear, what do we think of? A, a straight line, right, that we can look at from start to finish. This is how some people treat the book of Revelation. After John's introduction here in the letters to the seven churches in chapters two and three, they see the rest of the book as a series of chronological events that then take place and, and, and push us forward to the end of the world, the final judgment. The problem with that view is that the final judgment is actually described in some way, shape, or form in chapters eight, 11, 14, 16, 19, and 20. The seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls, they all end in the same way with lightning and thunder and earthquakes and hail and the destruction of the world and the judgment of God. We just need to ask this question, how many times can the final judgment be final? Only once, right? Only once. Apocalyptic writing is not primarily linear, although it does contain some chronology. Instead, it's primarily circular, revisiting events from different perspectives. Any sports fans in here? It's okay, you can be proud. So I'll speak to the four people in the back then. I think you'll get this illustration. Yes, good. I love that. Okay. It's fantastic. Okay, Kay, you know, you know what an instant replay is, right? Listen, you guys know what an instant replay is, right? Doesn't matter the sport, but they show those back to back to back, don't they? Slow motion. Are, are they showing you three different plays? They're not showing you three different plays, are they? They're showing you the same play, one touchdown, right, from three different angles, and like the third angle, you actually see that, that the ball crossed the plane before his knee was down, right? Where it might be unclear in the first one, it gets clearer and clearer as you spin that camera around and you look at all these different angles. Same play from three different angles. This is what apocalyptic writing does. This is how it works. The term for this is recapitulation. It's repeating the same scene from different angles in order to give increasing clarity to what's happening. 
Now, each camera angle in Revelation is more intense than the previous one in order to make the escalating nature of God's judgment abundantly clear to John's readers. Early on in the book, the cameras focus more on their current situation, but as the book progresses, the camera angles change and the focus becomes increasingly locked in on what happens when Christ returns. Apocalyptic writing is not only nonlinear, it's also non-literal. It primarily operates through the use of symbolism. This is how it works. This is how apocalyptic writing works. There are some who would say, and I may step on some toes here this morning, but listen, I'm not, I'm not here to argue positions. I'm here to help us look at what God's word says about itself so that we would humbly ask is my way of approaching this the way that God is revealing this? There are some who would say that if we're going to take Revelation seriously, then we have to interpret it literally. But John, doesn't he literally tell us in verse 1 that this is apocalyptic literature? Shouldn't we take that seriously? Those people would say that we need to interpret everything literally unless the text forces us to interpret something, something symbolically. But guess what verse 1 does? It forces us from the very beginning to flip that line of thinking on its head. Because this is apocalyptic literature, we ought to interpret things symbolically unless the text itself forces us to interpret something literally. And it will. We'll see that as we work through the book. We need to understand this, too. Something does not have to be literal in order to be true. Literal and truth are not equal. They're not the same identical things. My kids say the word literally all the time. And, and literally nothing they say is Literal. I say it too. I can't throw them under the bus. I'm sorry, kids. Please forgive me. Something doesn't have to be literal to be true. And the purpose of the symbols, listen, we're not talking about allegory here. We're not talking about making up some story based on what we've seen. We're talking about symbolism. And symbols point to literal realities. They point to actual truth. If that weren't the case, then this book, again, would be no help to the seven churches that John wrote to or to us. In chapter 5, John will describe Jesus as a slaughtered lamb, listen, with seven horns and seven eyes. Is that literally true? Everybody shakes their head no, because we know from John's gospel and everywhere, literally everywhere else, right, in, the, in this Bible, that Jesus came as a man. He came as a, as a baby, as a human being. He grew up as a man. He only ever had two eyes and one head, right? We know that's not literally true because it sounds so unbelievably fantastical. And we know what Jesus did. We know that he came with, with two eyes and no horns. But the image that John describes symbolically communicates some very important truths about Christ's authority and his reign. And we'll see that. As we get to those chapters and throughout the, the rest of the book, if John employs symbolic imagery when he's talking about Jesus, would it be so far-fetched to believe that he's also employing symbolic imagery when he talks about other things in Revelation? Not if we understand that this is an apocalyptic book. This book is filled with symbolic images and symbolic numbers that John employs to communicate literal realities to the recipients of this apocalyptic, prophetic letter. That's what makes Revelation different than every other book. No other book in the Bible combines those three things, although Revelation is not the only apocalyptic, prophetic writing in the Bible. There's apocalyptic writing found in some of the Old Testament prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and Zechariah, just to name a few. In fact, this, this may be new to you. Maybe it's not. 
almost all of the images that John describes in the book of Revelation are actually found already somewhere in the Old Testament. He expects these seven churches to use their Bibles, their Bibles to help them understand his letter. We would be wise to do the same. Scripture is always the best interpreter of Scripture. Always. The responsible way to read and interpret Revelation, listen, is not by holding this book in one hand and all of the current newspapers in the other trying to match headlines with John's descriptions. That would actually be irresponsible for us to do. The responsible way to interpret Revelation God has already given us all that we need is by holding this book in one hand and guess what? The Old Testament in the other. The Old Testament in the other. The problem is that we don't know our Old Testament well enough to recognize the thing that John describes here and so these descriptions seem really crazy and fantastical and foreign to us. But they aren't fantastical and foreign to the seven churches that John is writing to. These churches know their Bible They know the Old Testament. That was their Bible. So much so that John actually doesn't really feel the need to quote it directly for them. I think we're going to see in verse uh, 7, we're going to see two quotations. And I, I think those might be the only actual direct quotations in the whole book, if my memory serves me. Instead, he constantly alludes to the Old Testament throughout his writing. There are over depending on who you talk to, but somewhere around 500 allusions to the Old Testament contained in the book of Revelation. And there are, excuse me, only a little over 400 verses in the book. That's 1.25 allusions to the Old Testament for everything that John says, every verse that John writes in this book. There are more allusions to the Old Testament in this single book than in all the other books of the New Testament combined. If we really want to understand Revelation, we need to pick up our Old Testament. We need to set some other things down. The opening verse of Revelation is an allusion to to Daniel 2. The opening verse. John's already pointing his his readers back to Daniel 2. In Daniel 2, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had a really weird dream that he didn't know the meaning of, and God enabled Daniel to understand the dream and relay then its meaning to Nebuchadnezzar. In In the dream was this statue that had four sections, and each one was made of a different type of metal, and the last one had some clay mixed into it. And then a stone broke off from a mountain without being touched by human hands, and it came and it shattered all the sections of the statue. Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar that those sections represented four earthly kingdoms, including Nebuchadnezzar's. His was the gold one. And the stone represented a heavenly kingdom of God that would destroy all the kingdoms of the earth and endure forever. When Nebuchadnezzar had first asked Daniel if he was able to interpret the dream, here's how Daniel replied in Daniel chapter 2, verses 27 through 29. Daniel answered the king, No wise man, no medium, no magician or diviner is able to make known the king to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has let King Nebuchadnezzar know what will happen in the last days. Your dream and the visions that came into your mind as you lay in bed were these. Your majesty, while you were in your bed, thoughts came to your mind about what will happen in the future. The revealer of mysteries has let you know what will happen. Didn't we just hear similar language from John in verse one? God is the revealer of mysteries who let King Nebuchadnezzar know what was going to happen. This same God is the one who revealed things and made them known to John here in this book. There's one major difference, though. Did you catch it? God revealed through Daniel what will happen, Daniel says, in the last days. But according to verse 1 here, he revealed through John what must soon take place. 
And that leads us to the final thing that we need to look at this morning, why this message matters. What was far off for Daniel, John sees as already inaugurated by Christ's resurrection. Here in verse 3, John promises blessing and encourages obedience to the words of this prophecy. What does he say? Because the time is, what? Near, right? Now we think of that as, as like coming soon. The idea in the Greek is that, it, that it's, it's already starting. It's beginning to arrive. The time is at hand. Jesus used this same wording in Mark 1.15 when he said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come, what? Near. Has come near. It's at hand. It's here. Repent and believe the good news. We know that he inaugurated his kingdom reign through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. The gospels and the rest of the entire New Testament give ample evidence to this reality. This means then that through revelation throughout this book, John is giving his readers different views of the same time frame between Christ's resurrection and his return. This means that this book isn't only for the seven churches in Asia Minor in the first century. It means that it's relevant for every Christ-following church all over the world in every century until Jesus himself comes back for his bride. It means that blessing, the, the blessing promised to those seven churches is also promised to you and me. Why? Because this is a blessing for the church universal. What do we do when we gather together on a Sunday morning? Whether we're in the book of Revelation or not, don't we read the words of Scripture out loud? Isn't there one who reads out loud these words? Aren't there many who hear these words and seek to obey these words? That's the church. That's the church. Isn't that what John is telling the churches to do here? The number seven is also a number that represents completeness and fullness. We'll see lots of symbolic numbers to that end. The churches that John wrote to were actual churches. That's, that's, that's literal, right? They were real churches in a real place, but it's not a coincidence that he wrote to seven of them. The message in Revelation for them is the message for the church as a whole because until Christ returns, the church will live on this earth in times of trial and tribulation and be tempted to compromise and give in to the idolatry of this world for the sake of comfort. Don't we hear these warnings in other books of the New Testament? Have you ever been tempted to be like, man, is this really worth it? Following Jesus? Isn't life hard? Right now, don't we have a faithful Savior who keeps encouraging us through his spirit to endure? You see, we serve a king who's already on the throne. Already. Colossians 3 tells us that. And a lot of other places in the New Testament And this king is coming back to put an end to sin and injustice and suffering and make all things right and all things new. And until he returns, we have to live in dependence upon him and his grace and hold on to the hope of what is to come so that we patiently and faithfully endure to the end. I think the message of Revelation for Christ's universal church can be summed up well by the words that he told his first disciples back in John's gospel. Pastor Ben read those this morning during our prayer time. John 16, 33. I've told you these things so that in me, in me, you may have peace. Not guaranteed safety. Not guaranteed comfort. Not guaranteed happiness. Not guaranteed wealth. Not guaranteed uh, freedom from sickness or disease. Peace in me. You will have suffering in this world. That's actually what he says. That's what you're going to get. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. For I have conquered. Have conquered 
not only will conquer, I have conquered the world. John offers that peace of Christ along with the grace of Christ to the seven churches in the greeting of his letter here in verses four through six. He calls Christ the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Listen, Jesus is the king of truth who has conquered the world by what? Raising from the dead. He's the one who died and rose and will never die again. But that grace and peace doesn't only come from Jesus, John tells us. It also comes from the one who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before the throne. Who's he talking about there? The Father and the Holy Spirit. Remember, the, sum, the number seven represents completeness. It's the fullness of God's presence, the fullness of his spirit. It's the Holy Spirit he's talking about right there, not seven individuals. The church has been given the fullness of grace and peace through the Father, through the Son, and the Holy Spirit in order to persevere and remain faithful, listen, to the very end, to the very end. We have a risen king who loves us and who has set us free from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests to God his Father. John's alluding to another Old Testament passage right there when he says that. He's using language from Exodus 19, verses five and six. When God said to the people of Israel, now if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, what does that sound like? Verse three, right? You will be my own possession out of all the peoples, although the whole earth is mine, and you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. If you know any Old Testament history, you know that Israel failed miserably. They compromised over and over and gave in to the idolatry of the world. And as a result, they never saw this promise come to full fruition as a nation. But, but let's just think through. I'm going to allude to some New Testament passages this morning. Maybe this week as you hear these, that you can go and look at those in their context. Jesus Christ, the true Israel, gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to listen carefully to him and obey his commands to do good works. And he made his church the true Israel by making Jewish and Gentile believers into one new man, one new temple, one new body, one new flock, and into a kingdom of priests so that we may proclaim the praises of the one who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We serve a king who is already has glory and dominion forever and ever. I need to ask you, because this isn't just a walkthrough of the book of Revelation, but this is the word of God for the people of God, and God's word presses on our hearts, and God's word presses on the hearts of those who are far from him, and lets us look yet again to Jesus in his grace. I need to ask you, do you serve this king? Do you serve this king? Have you had your sin, uh, uh, have you been set free from your sins by his blood? Do you know this grace and peace that's only found in him? Listen, you don't have to wait until we figure out revelation. You don't have to wait until we finish this book to experience the blessing of salvation and forgiveness through Jesus Christ. In fact, you won't find it anywhere else or in anyone else. Jesus is the eternal king of glory who will shatter every kingdom, earthly kingdom that sets itself up against him. He's the stone in Daniel's vision. He's the stone that that those who come will trip over and those on who it falls will be shattered. That's what he says in Luke. He's going to shatter every earthly kingdom that sets itself up against him and that includes your own personal kingdom. This life's not about you. It's not about me. But we sure try to make it that way, don't we? Here's the thing, though. This eternal king of glory who will shatter every earthly kingdom that sets itself up against him, including your own personal kingdom, is also the eternal 
king of grace who will mend, mend, renew every heart that humbly surrenders to him, including yours and mine. Won't you surrender? Won't you confess your need to this king? Won't you come to him for forgiveness that he freely offers and receive his grace and mercy? Why don't you just turn from your sin and trust yourself to Jesus this morning? Don't wait until we finish this book. Don't wait until we leave this room. He's the eternal king. He's listening to you right now. Why not run to him? In verse 7, John quotes from two Old Testament passages to show that this king of glory is indeed the king of grace. Look at what he says. Look, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. Now, when we hear the words, he's coming with the clouds, we automatically think about Jesus returning, right? And that's true. Acts, Acts chapter 1, that when, the angel, when Jesus ascends to heaven, the angel says, wait, what are you doing standing around? Staring in the, in the, in the heavens, right? The way, he, the way he went up is the way he's coming down, right? But in the context of Daniel 7, which is actually the passage, this first passage that Don, John quotes here, the Son of Man, the one who's like the Son of Man, is coming on the clouds, not down, but he's going up to stand before the throne of the Ancient of Days. He's brought before the Ancient of Days. Where's his throne? It's in heaven. The Son of Man is not coming to earth in that scene. He's going to heaven where he is given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Do you know what took Jesus up to heaven when he ascended in Acts chapter 1, after he rose from the dead? A cloud. It says it right there. He's coming on the clouds to the Ancient of Days. Philippians 2. God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand. Colossians 3. Don't set your minds on, or, or uh, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is. Right? This means that Jesus is already ruling a kingdom that will not be destroyed and he's ruling it with dominion that will not pass away. And as the gospel continues to be proclaimed, God continues to rescue his people from the dominion of darkness and transfer them into the kingdom of the son he loves. Colossians 1, 13 and 14. Second passage that John quotes is from Zechariah 12, 10, where God said, then I will pour out a spirit of grace and prayer on the house of David and the residents of Jerusalem, and they will look at me, whom they pierced, they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weeps bitterly for him. And they will weep bitterly for him as one weeps for a firstborn. That mourning and that weeping is the fruit of repentance brought about by the grace of God as the house of David and the people of Jerusalem realized what they had done to God. But notice what John does with this verse. Instead of saying that the house of David and the people of Jerusalem will, will mourn, what does he say here in verse 7? All the tribes of the earth will mourn. And that will happen when they look on the one that they have pierced. John also quoted Zechariah 12.10 in his gospel when he wrote about the soldier piercing Jesus' side as Jesus hung on the cross. Now he's not saying that everyone in the world will mourn, will repent, and mourn over the reality of their sin, uh, uh, that their sin put Jesus on the cross and turn and repent. We know this from the gospel. Even as Jesus hung there dying for the sins of his people, there were people standing at the foot of the cross mocking him and laughing at him. But John is saying that God's grace will continue through Christ to bring repentance to those of every people, nation, and language from the time of Christ's resurrection until the time of his return. And that return is actually promised here in verse 8 by Christ himself. Let's look at it together. 
I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. The one who is, who was, here it is, and is to come. The Almighty. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. He's the Almighty, the one with all dominion and authority. He is the I Am, the one who is, the one who was, and the one who is to come. His kingdom is already established in heaven and he has promised to come again to bring that heavenly kingdom down to earth. He will destroy his enemies. He will rescue his people and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it will experience the blessing of reigning with the risen Christ as his resurrected people forever and ever. Amen. This is the hope-filled message of the book of Revelation. Revelation is not a puzzle to be solved about the future. It's a message to be heard and obeyed right now. And everyone who hears the message of this book and obeys it will be blessed. Do you know that there are seven pronouncements of blessing in this book? Here's your homework this week. Go read it and see if you can find the other six. We just read the first one in verse 3. And as we work our way through this apocalyptic, prophetic letter together, oh, my prayer is that we might be those who would seek to humbly hear the words of this prophecy revealed by God himself and keep what is written in it to obey it. Why? Because the time is near. Time is near. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and your spirit that work together to transform our hearts and minds that we might be more like Jesus, our King, our Savior, our God. We pray, Lord, that you would, uh, you would enable us through your spirit to come humbly, as James says, to humbly receive the implanted word that's able to save our souls, that we would honestly take a look at what you have to say, what you have revealed, and that you would stir our hearts to a greater affection for Jesus, a greater dependence upon him, a greater resolve to endure and not compromise with the things of this world, and a greater hope knowing that everything that we see here is absolutely true, and there's a glorious reality yet to come. We ask all these things in the name of our risen Savior. Amen.